Welcome one and all to another episode of my RPG podcast. Today's guest is Michael Surbrook. Michael has quite the resume in regards to producing for RPGs. We're talking about stuff that goes back over the past 20 years of various systems and various sorts of genres. So he's actually one of the perfect guests to have on and actually got him through Twitter uh, through a mutual friend. So I hope you guys enjoyed listening to this episode. To a new episode of my RPG podcast. Today's guest is Michael Serbrook. Michael, will you please introduce yourself? Uh, greetings, everyone. I'm Michael Serbrook. I am a game designer. I've been doing various uh, development for different RPGs uh, since the late 90s. Currently, I am Chief Operations Officer for Evil Beagle Games based out of Denver, Colorado, uh, and just returned from Gen Con where I helped my roommate launch. Wrath and Glory, the new 40K RPG. Yeah, Michael's got a fantastic resume in regards to RPGs and publishing his own works for RPGs. We're going to actually get to that in just one moment. But let's start with the genesis, Michael. When did it all begin for you? What was your first foray into RPGs? My first foray would be around 1977, when my older brother's friends introduced him to a game called Dungeons & Dragons. And then I was introduced to Dungeons and Dragons, and, and from there it just sort of snowballed. Um, I became really interested. I got the original little blue book, which explained how to adventure from levels one to three, and then picked up modules and the various books. Never really played many campaigns, oddly enough. Uh, that never really seemed to happen until late high school and and after I got out of high school. So there was a a long period of just reading a lot of the books and and uh, not having a group to play with, but creating really pointless dungeons. I loved the random dungeon creator in the back of the DMG. Um, but also it, it opened my eyes to other games. For a while in high school, during lunch, we played uh, a D&D game using the various spell law, arms law, claw law from Rollmaster. I got into Car Wars. We played a bit of Car Wars. Uh, I also found it was that you could solo Ogre and GEV, and I fell in love with Steve Jackson games. I do ca- I do remember eating lunch in art class because I was allowed during lunch period. I could I'd eat in art class, and me and somebody I knew we played Battlesuit, which was the man-to-man combat game of um, Steve Jackson's Ogre universe. Then I discovered Fantasy Trip, and then messed around with that quite a bit. And then I think the big the big uh, catalyst for my current career. Uh, is my a good friend of mine went to college and he was introduced to champions and then he really wanted to run a champions campaign so just as I was toward the end of my uh, as I was graduating high school around 85 uh, he introduced us to champions and I really fell in love with the system because you could do anything with it and uh, after uh, some attempts to create characters that were pretty laughable. 
I began to get more and more confident with the system, and I subscribed to the champion's mailing list, which is long gone. And people would post character adaptions. And a lot of them were, they didn't explain why they did what they did, or they didn't explain anything about the character. You were just supposed to know what it is. And I thought I could do better. So I started doing adaptions of a lot of anime and manga characters. I was reading a lot of uh, Battle Angel and Blade of the Immortal, Gunsmith Cats, things like that. Uh, and I started writing up characters from fiction, all sources. Uh, and I would actually explain why I picked the numbers I did. You know, I saw the character pick this, this much up. So that equates to this strength. And then when I joined uh, and I'd post on the hero mailing list and I'd read people's reactions and adjust them. And then when the hero message boards came around, I did the same there. Uh, and in the late, very late nineties, I saw a copy of bubblegum crisis or one of the episodes of bubblegum crisis sitting in a, in a computer a blockbuster, which is completely gone now, by the way, there's one left in like Alaska, but the idea of somebody in powered armor with this enormous cannon and my interest in Shadowrun and cyberpunk 2020 and so on led me to create something which ended up getting called Kaze five. Which one of your previous guests is play Jeff Mueller? Yes, Jeff Mueller is a uh, as you mentioned one of the previous guests. You guys can listen to that episode in the queue. And what I loved about uh, Jeff and the reason I got to get to know Michael is because of Jeff is because uh, Jeff uh, is 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 uh, my elder statesman and I aspire to be him. But also he's he's a good person to go to as well as another previous guest, Dan Wallace, uh, for kind of systems outside of kind of your major RPGs when you think of like your White Wolves and your Vampires and your D&D Pathfinder, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I love him as a resource for that. And what was great is once I started watching, first I started enjoying Michael's tweets. If you guys haven't had the opportunity to, I, I suggest you subscribe to Michael on uh, Twitter because he's got a lot of great insights into uh, RPGs and kind of his thoughts, especially when a topic arises, which I'm going to get to actually a little bit later. But um, I really love the breadth uh, of your resume when it comes to all these games. I mean, you you don't just love RPGs. You love like you love and then go far and beyond. You've worked with and created so much work for all these systems. What is it that draws you into RPGs? Is it the mechanics? Is it what is it? Uh, well, initially. Actually, initially what happened was this this desire to create. Um, I mean, finishing up how I got into what I do, I was talking to a gentleman named Harry Heckle, who's a designer at uh, Dream Wizards in Maryland, and I described the universe and and what I was doing with it. And he said, you should talk to Bruce Harlock. So I did, and Bruce accepted it. And uh, to cut, uh, I could sit there and go through all this and kind of bore everybody, but... Basically, um, that all drew the attention of some major people at Hero, and they gave me the chance to create, and that's really what draws me into it. Um, I actually had a long post about imposter syndrome where I talk about why I do what I do, and I realized having read Stephen King talk about why what he does, he does, I will be sitting around, uh, we'll be talking about something, and something, uh, an idea will come up. And be like, well, I could work with that. I could do this and this and this. And the idea is like, yeah, I can make this into something and I want to share it with people. Now, I will admit that as I belong to a game company, I look at things in the eye of, will this sell? Will it be worth my energy to do it? Because I have a lot of ideas and some I know will give me a, will give me a return. And while I don't live off of my gaming income, uh, it does help. 
in, in, in some ways. Um, but uh, there's a twofold thing here. There's the desire to take something and give it to other people and let them play with it and then feed off their energy to create more. And I will admit uh, this is a business and we do run a company. So part of me is also, uh, you know, what, what will what will sell? What will people want as well? I don't want to produce material that nobody's interested in. So I want to work it with what people are interested in, but I want to work with what I like to create with what people are interested in, such as what I'm doing for right now. I'm doing a lot of D&D 5e. I really enjoy 5e. Uh, it is the D&D game I've been waiting for. Um, I think it's very fun to create for, in my opinion, easy to create for. People enjoy it. It's very popular, and I can get my ideas out and therefore get exposure that somebody may come to me and go, I saw what you did for 5e, but we're doing this thing for this other system, but we we think you would be a good fit. And then I can try to expand what I know by working with that. Um, I will admit, my roommate, Ross Watson, said, I, you know, I think you could do a good job working on um, some products for Dark Heresy when he was line editor for Dark Heresy. And I said, I don't know, man. I really don't know 40K. And he said, well, we'll work with, you know, we'll work on it. And uh, one of the proudest moments was when the product that we worked on, me and a bunch of others with with Ross Editing, won a Silver Any. So I can say I've won an Any, even if it was cooperatively. And then one of the people attending, she said, oh, you you know, my favorite creature is this. And I was like, well, I created that. And ha- to have somebody who was a huge 40K fan say that what you created is their favorite creature out of the book was, you know, a huge uplift for me. And uh, and recently I've been helping, you know, with Wrath and Glory and got to play some of it. And I'm like, you know, I could I could work with this. It's you don't need to be in an encyclopedia of 40K. You just need to have an idea of what they what what the setting is like and what, what works for it. And I can expand my skill set or what I've done uh, by working with this. And in fact, I just went through my roommate and wrote some proposals and we've sent it in. And I actually may something that he gave me said, I want you want you to create a proposal for this if you feel up to it. I said, I'm going to try it. I said, you know, we went through three drafts. The final draft, he said, was was perfect. He said it was uh, excellent. You know, he had two corrections. Um, we've sent it in, and now I'm going to wait and see, and then I'll, I'll learn a little bit more about writing and some project management and elements like that. And when it's, if it all goes through, I'm crossing my fingers, I can say, well, I, I, didn't, I didn't just write that or parts of that. I managed the people who created that, and that's another step forward in what I do. Um, does that answer your question? I realize that my stream. No, of consciousness- no, you're fine. Listen, <laughs> okay. I, lo- I love I love the stream of consciousness, and there's uh, so many things I can pick apart from just that stream. But like, let's let me reel it back to that very beginning when you're talking about it. imposter syndrome and kind of getting your start into this kind of field or any field in general. I think the most difficult thing for any sort of um, journey or whatever is the first step. Right? Is that feeling of like I can actually do this thing, not just you know, maybe casually, but like maybe I can produce a, a product that people will want to enjoy and, and get into. Um, what is it then was the, that that first step? You, I think you might have mentioned it a little bit earlier when seeing, seeing somebody look at your stuff and thinking like, hey, this is actually really, really good. Let's get you involved there. But uh, do you think like the like I just want to know what was your kind of uh, map to, to get here? Was it just creating something and then having the right people get to it? Or did you make a Defined like I'm going to go pursue creating content uh, for RPGs or a spe- specific system. Um, I was originally creating for a specific system. I was originally creating for Hero System, which you made some people name, but no better as champions. Um, I uh, I created one item, which was actually very popular. Uh, the original version of Kaze Five 
was by many said to be, oh, this, if you want to do Cyberpunk and Champions, you get this, this supplement. Um, and I continued to, to do what I like to do, which was to, I would see something in a TV show or movie or um, in an anime or read, read something in a, in a book or a comic or whatever. And I would, cre- I would create it. And this let me, first of all, I tried to all, I tried to make my writing better. I wanted the character sheets to be cleaner. I wanted my explanations to be better. I wanted to, I wanted to improve how I was communicating information so that people would not come back and go, I don't understand what you did. You know, and I remember one of my proudest moments is when I spent a week or more reading the entire Delray run of Conan, all three books. Um, I took extensive notes. I wrote them up. If you know Champions 5th Edition, he was a 500-point barbarian warrior, which is meant he was more points than you are starting superheroes. And I posted them, and somebody said, I can't complain. You've explained why you picked what you did. You explained the numbers. You explained, you know, everything that he's done, uh, you know, and you even you even point out where you can add more abilities to him that you didn't do. Uh, and, you, you know, you've you've given me you've made it so that I understand why you have written what you have written. And it was work like that that made one of the people that when they when Hero Games was purchased in the in the early aughts. Uh, said, you know, there's people I'd like to have work for us and do work for us. And my name was on the list. And uh, the next stepping stone then was being asked to work on a book called Ninja Hero, which, like many creators, I look back and shake my head because I'm like, oh, it could be so much better. Um, But from there, uh, I communicated and was able to work with the people at Hero. And that work drew, drew attention to, like I said, my friend Ross Watson, who was a big friend of Kaze 5, and then from there, it sort of snowballed. Um, you know, some people recommended, say, well, he's, he, he does good work. You might ask him to do this. And then when the chance came to do third-party non-work uh, uh, for Heroes games, as in Hero System compatible but not published by Hero, I had an outlet for a lot of creative ideas from there. And then it just sort of worked its way along. Uh, and so until you, I, as I sent you the resume, you can see I'm almost up to, probably a broken 50 published products that I've uh, either written for in some cases have some illustrations in, or now I'm also doing mapping. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'll actually put this in the description of the uh, podcast. If you guys want to see the full list of Michael's work, but uh, it sounds for me like you had a, kind of a structured idea of what you wanted to do initially and you made it as best and as good as possible. And that works kind of spoke for itself. And there, from there came kind of a reputation review, being able to do that and then the right people getting into contact with you. So I, I think that's one of the, the, the lessons to understand from anything in, in life is maybe a disciplined approach, having a, a definable goal about what you want to accomplish. And maybe it doesn't have to be so large as like, let's say I want to feed, you know, my wife and kids off of, you know, my RPGs or my publishing or my art or my music or whatever profession you're in. But you have an interest, you like a thing, and you decide, like, I want to make content for that thing, and you try to make it as best as possible. And I also not going to bring up your LinkedIn or anything here, but I think probably part of the reason you were so good at explaining why your system and your creation worked so well is because you do tend tend to, and tell me if I'm wrong, I think you have kind of an analytical uh, kind of uh, technical background, just considering what you do as a regular day job, right? Yeah. Um, well, the curious thing is, is that my current job comes from my RPG writing. I had been a Mac Macintosh support tech for a very long time and wanted to get out of that. I thought about getting into web development, but discovered that my creative mind does not extend to programming. Um, and that really cuts short your web design uh, career right there. I do not grok Java and 
PHB and some of these other things. I, uh, I understand bits of it, but parts of it just get away from me. However, uh, my current, the man who hired me for the job that I have now saw uh, a book that I had done, which was the second edition of Kaze 5 that clocked in at over 200,000 words and 320 pages. And he later told me his, his thought was, any man, anybody who can write that can write my documentation. So uh, I parlayed that in my current job, which has then expanded to a couple of other things. But um, curiously, one of the side jobs that I also hold, you know, somebody said, you know, said to one of the people on the project, you know, anybody who can write? They said, yeah, actually we do. So now I find myself doing blogs and what's called uh, SEO, search engine optimization and such. And I edited a thesis to clean it up, to make it legible. Um, and, uh, you know, and so it's, and there are people in the Denver area because I fear I may have to look for a new job because the contract I'm on is going to may end soon. And they're like, yeah, you know, you write, you write clearly, you write in a formative manner. Um, you do research well, we could use you. So, so it, so I would say it's kind of, um, it's kind of, uh, uh, like the, uh, snake that eats itself or the infinity symbol. Uh, one feeds the other and improves both sides. Uh, you know, the more I, the more I work, uh, doing cleaning up reports and everything, the more I understand how, how I want to clean up what I write. But the more I write for games, the better I feel confident about writing in general. And it just goes back and forth. Um, I would say anybody who wants to get into gaming actually has an easier barrier now because you have drive through RPG, you have GM, DMs Guild, you have various other outlets, some of whom uh, will let you use trade dress from the game that you want to do. If you go through DMs Guild, you can use a lot of D&D artwork and images and so on to enhance your product. Um, and that's a great outlet. Now, granted, a lot of people do it. You may be lost in the vast sea. Uh, but if you want, want to make your product stand out, um, you really need to define what your product's going to be about. If you're going to write up a class, make sure that it's uh, you clearly are defining what the class do. You play test it a bit. Make sure it's clear. If it's a monster, make sure the numbers all work. Make sure that you've got a pretty accurate uh, challenge rating. Make sure that you are, are explaining what it is. Um, if you're doing something for another game system, don't, the same holds true. Uh, you can't proofread your own stuff, so try to have somebody else do it. Dump it into Word. Dump it into Google Docs. Have them look for the gross errors. Read your sentences out loud. Read them backwards. Um, because uh, that's a good way to find when you've written the, the, um, reading them out loud, you go, wow, it sounds really awkward. Think about what you're doing. Uh, and that's, that's, um, and that's really the most important thing and read what other people do. Uh, um, there are, there's a, there's some people I know who don't like to read, but they want to create. And, and it's, it's like, well, you can do that, but if you, but if you don't want to be tone deaf, and, and Neil Gaiman and I think Stephen King will both say this, and this holds true for if you're going to do fiction, if you're going to do gaming, read what other people are doing, see how they get their ideas across, and you know try to either take what you like or 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 hot, mentally highlight what you think is done badly, and um, don't make the you know either do what they do or try to adapt what they do to what you want to do, or don't make those mistakes, um, and that's that's really I think will help you get ahead and get people's attention to yourself. In your product. Absolutely. And I think you've had uh, so many great points in there that anybody can take from and, and definitely uses good advice. Now, more personally to the way you game, um, what do you look for in a system or an adventure or something like that, that, that 
will tell you like, oh, this is good. This is fun. This is crafted well. Is it, is it technical? Is it a feeling? I know we mentioned earlier about like if there's like a show, like an anime or manga thing inspired or some thought that you have that's kind of a trigger that you can uh, you, uh, latch on to. But is it the same way when you look at systems? Do you look for a certain sort of trigger or a mechanism to latch on to? Yeah. Um, one thing I, I really um, like or look forward to would be a certain flexibility. Uh I used to, I was a huge fan of the hero system because it could let you do just about anything. And that let you, uh, and had immense flexibility with regards to what kind of games you could run, what kind of characters you can play, what genres you could be in. Um, and, and, you know, some people will say it's very, it's a very complex system. It's math intensive. And I will admit it is not a, it is not your typical starting RPG. Uh, D&D, especially 5e, is the perfect gateway. If you like that, well, let's go on to something a little bit more elaborate. Um, I'm willing to try, you know, many games. There was a time period where I had a Thursday night group uh, where we played just about anything. And we experimented Weapons of the Gods. We experimented with Thousand Suns and with Tristat and all this. And there were times I'd grow frustrated because the game seemed very artificially limited there's other times it's like, well, I really like what this does because it's easy to understand and it's flexible and does not uh, constrain you. You know, now granted, one of the most flexible systems out there I don't get, which is fate. And I just admit I'm not a fan of fate. Um, adventure wise, I like to look for something that understands that, uh, uh, you're gonna, that you, that the GM needs to be flexible. Um, uh, I think curse, I still think curse of Strahd is the best 5e game uh, module put out so far simply because it does not dictate a path. The It is, yeah, it is wide open for what the players can do. And when I sat down for my session zero in Maryland, and when I sit down for my session zero here in Denver, I will say, uh, you know, you can wander into places uh, that are way out of your pay grade. You may have to, con- you may have to consider retreating and coming back. There's no guarantee that uh, everything is going to be leveled to you because uh, the way the place is set up, um, there is no railroad. You, there's, no, there's no, oh, this must, this, you know, you go from here to here to here. It is very much a sandbox. And one of the, and I played in up to 16th level before I moved out here, uh, Tyranny of Dragons, and the GM for that groused that um, it was at times railroady and sketchy and uh, did not. Uh, help the GM with all the options that may be needed or sort of presume that that players are going to go from A to B to C to D. And in fact, there was one point where I was uh, looking over and helping proof an adventure for Wrath and Glory. And I went to Ross and he didn't write this or somebody else did. And I said, you know, the problem with the way this is structured is, is that the the writer assumes the players are going to do this action, this action, this action. When I can think of four or five other actions that could occur at this point, and he doesn't address that, um, and that's kind of a, a big mistake. You need to acknowledge that more than what you see as the uh, solution is going to occur. And so um, if I'm going to play, you know, my, my decision if I'm going to play a published module is after I read through it, do I feel it gives me enough information that I can I can run with it? Is it is it is it, you know, just on a rail? Uh, one of the complaints I've heard about the old Dragonlance modules is that because they were taken from the novels, um, they pretty had a pretty narrow focus and you just, you ran as they, as they put it, they railroaded you through to get to the end point. And um, now granted it's hard to do a full sandbox for every 
every module you write, but I think uh, a certain degree of flexibility um, is really, really needed, which is why I never bought any champions modules back in the day, because they pre often presumed too much. And I'm like, they don't fit in my superhero universe. And then after a while, I wasn't running superheroes and I didn't need them. You know, the, I, if I got them for like a dollar, I'd pick them up because I'd always like to see the builds that people did for villains. Um, but I'm, I'm also a real big fan of um, with champions. I was a real big fan of anything that was a guide to equipment or creatures or spells or powers. And with 5e, I'm all about Mordekainen's Tome of Foes, Anther's Guide to Everything, Volos, and so on, because uh, they show me all the options and let me give me a, a bigger box to play in. Does that help? And I, no, that, that actually, that's great because that's one of the things, ironically enough, well, I didn't have the opportunity to go to Gen Con because unfortunately it's kind of sandwiched right between two of the major cons I go to, which are Comic-Con, San Diego Comic-Con and Dragon Con. I did have the opportunity to get uh, <laughs> a, a friend of mine into GMing, DMing for the very, very first time. And he was kind of spur of the moment thing. We needed to help somebody out and we needed a whole bunch of DMs as fast as possible. So I had the the difficulty uh, of being like, I need to turn somebody who's you know only been a player and has never had a GM mentality into a GM in about a night. But what, what was great is I happened to have ha had run a game from uh, it's from Winghorn Press. Uh, it's a it's it's a it's a one shot called the the Wild Sheep Chase or Wild Sheeple Chase or something like that. But what I really loved about this adventure um, was that it was very very open and not in not in the sense of like oh you don't have any direction as as a DM how to run it. It's very obvious like if X then why can happen. But literally in the text itself, it goes, here's the idea of what this person's like. Here's what their motivations are, are like generally. So if anything strays from this, always push towards this general direction. And if the party even just ignores him or kills him when he's not, you know, before the next step, fine. You can just run with something else. It literally tells you like, here's just a general idea and play from there. And I thought that was one of the best options uh, to, to give to my friend and it worked great because it gave him the freedom to make it an adventure of his own and never feel like he's failing or like, oh, no, I should consult the text and see what comes next. And, and then I talked to him immediately after and he tells me how the adventure run. And I was like, dude, I've run that adventure four or five times and I've never had it go that way. That's a brilliant. That's what it's kind of what I want ultimately in published content is the idea that we're not all running the same thing, even though we're, we can hit the same points. And I actually love Curse of Strahd. I'm not going to create any spoilers here especially if my players listen um but you know done a year and a half in barovia and not even touched a large part of that content because it's so open and i can kind of just they can go left and right and then kind of retreat after they run into a place that's out of their level until they can come back and maybe resolve that um you know dispute or resolve that adventure or that monster battle and that I think I, I agree with you in, uh, in a great deal. It's kind of one of my favorite things about kind of more flexible RPG systems. Now, I've had only a small bit of time with Fate, so I don't know if I, I, I don't like it like you do, but I've loved Open Legend, which is a, a, a system that I've had the opportunity to even guest on a stream for. I enjoy Open Legends for that as well as a GM because I'm more than likely going to rule of cool if I think the, the rule is too stringent or I can't open, uh, open up this uh, moment. Well, um, so actually, quick side note. I listened, I listened to the uh, interview or when you had Jeff on the show, and uh, I will brag, I was the GM that killed it for that Curse of Strahd game. You probably figured that out. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But um, so two things. I actually have a couple of convention adventures that I run, and I will state 
while a one-shot, which may take four to six hours, depending on how long you like to play, can be open-ended. I will say, if you're going to create a convention adventure, they often have to be very limited in scope. You have six people who don't know each other. You've got a limited amount of time. If they don't know the game, you've got to get them into it quickly. And um, the story, can, you know, maybe some people can do an elaborate story, but I tend to do very narrow focus, very simple, direct-to-the-point um, stories. On the other hand, often the uh, the players, um, you know, they really just want to be entertained. They want to roll dice, have fun. Um, they're not, you know, they're, you're not going to get the deep, immersive, and I'm not being sarcastic, role-playing experience because most of the time, uh, these are these are pre-generated characters, and they're just coming in to have a good time. Maybe try out a system, try out uh, play with somebody they know. That it's RPG fast food is the way right. I think of it. Now, like you don't go to a fast food restaurant for a three course meal and to feel like you're at home. Right now, on the other hand, uh, one of the things that I, one of my scenarios is Matt Mercer's To the Poop, converted from Pathfinder to Four E or Five E, and um, I will admit that while the base sequence of events is the same every time some of the things they do at the beginning and some of the stuff that happens at the end it's never the same thing twice and you know that and and uh, there's a couple of scenario uh, there's one i've run that's very much a railroad because you go down a, a sewer in one direction and people get so wrapped up in how weird everything is and the strange things that are going on and the payoff is what happens at the end where each player has to make their own decision and i've noted i said this is what we've been playing three hours for is now you guys get to argue among themselves and i've noted that I, i'm always amazed at what what happens um now that said uh when you are running a module, and I ran Curse of Strahd for 15 months only because I was moving out here, and we did cut it short a little bit soon because there were some places they wanted to go. Then I said, we're just going to have to get cut to the chase because I've only got like three or four sessions left before we have to go. And everybody knew that you know getting in the Ravenloft was going to eat a chunk of time. Um, but uh, even when you're running something that's published, I, I, I think there should be uh, – there, there, there is that uh, – let's go with that attitude. Um, uh, which is, you know, if you have an, like a GM, I had an idea about how I wanted to switch things around. Um, yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm going to take out something I don't like and putting something that works better. Or if I get a feel for how the players are, I may add in elements and, and to the people in my Curse of Strahd game wanted to run it for me and the other guy that was also in the Curse of Strahd game. And I know at times they were like, oh, that's not even, they know, they were like, that's not in the book. Mike's going completely original. And they didn't care. In fact, there was a few points where I know one of them was grinning under his scarf that he would pull up over his face to hide smiles and smirks and things because he liked, he was like, oh, yeah, I, I like where all this is going. Um, and uh, so I think even if you're running a published module, um, you know, don't be afraid to put your own stamp on it. If you see something you don't like, or you have an idea. Um, and as I said, the, the phrase I have is, you know, if the player says something, Oh yeah, let's go with that. Um, and um, Ken Height brings this one up and I've seen other people talk about it too. You know, if the players get really convinced that X is the answer and the book says why maybe should, you know, maybe make it X anyways, because they, they feel brilliant. We figured it out and you're like, yeah, whatever. It doesn't matter if it's X or Y, did they get to, did they achieve what they wanted to achieve and having fun? 
And I think this goes back to a thing I wanted to talk about mechanics as well, because I think it was I forget it was Mike Merles or Chris Perkins who was bringing this up recently about maybe changing the way failures and successes are done on ability checks in Dungeons and Dragons, because there's a lot of this like you roll, you don't hit the DC, you do hit the DC, and maybe aside from like a critical on or uh, you know pass or a critical fail, it just becomes a fail no fail condition, which is not really that great from a role tele- role playing standpoint. So there. So one of the things I I I say also to anyone who's jamming and DMing all the time is, you want the players to feel like every action, failure or success, does create some sort of impact on the world or the game or the adventure. So just the the thing of the thing I always hated as as a GM and I and I tried to change my games is the idea of like oh well we're just gonna have to roll until somebody finally hits a fucking fifteen and we get over this wall or get through this like maze or whatever what we're doing that's that that that's when i think you lose the immersion and it just becomes like a tedious task so if you ever have to roll too much i, I think as as a gm it's kind of your job to introduce something to make these like failures feel like they affected the world maybe you drop some bats or some large creature on them because you were making such a racket or something like yeah, that. well actually so. I, let me expand upon what you just said because <laughs> i have, for I have, this a, is couple, what we're I have for. a couple of things that i can drop out that i love first of all um uh, Ross addresses this in Wrath and Glory. He has something called failing forward, which is you can fail to meet the difficulty check, uh, the DN, I think, the difficulty number, but the GM lets you succeed, but then p- throws a complication. And in D&D, because that's, you know, that, that's the easiest one, the idea being, well, it's a DC 15 to pick this lock, and you roll a 14, and the GM can go, you know what, you did pick the lock, but, and that's, of course, the worst thing you want to hear, and he says, oh, you know, you broke your tools. That's one thing. Or, hey, you know, the guards down the corner has heard something. Or, you know, or the, the wandering monster, the, the orc troop or the owlbear has wandered up the hallway. So, sure, you didn't, you, didn't, you didn't technically pick the lock, but you did. But now you have a further complication. You have to get through the door, door before whatever it is shows up. Or now your picks are damaged. It may be harder to pick the next lock. You have to see about replacing them. That kind of an element. And in Curse of Strahd, and what I'm what I like to do uh, when I run convention games is if you roll a one. Now a one in a skill check is not always a failure. It's only a natural one on a on a two hit because a one in a skill check could be like it's a DC ten um, difficult uh, check. You've got a one, but you've got plus eleven. Oh, you've got an eleven anyway, so you made it, which shows how skilled and heroic you are. But uh, what I will do is I'll say, well, how'd you fail? And I've had people like, hey, what? I'm asking you, how did you fail? What did you do that resulted in the fail? And it being like, oh, I threw my weapon away. It broke. It got stuck. I fell down. Um, and and players actually really like that idea that I'm asking them. Uh, and this happened in the Wrath and Glory demos I did where it's like, well, you got a failure. You got a, you got a conflict, not a failure. You got a complication on your attack. So you hit your enemy, but something else happened. One guy's like, well, can I run my sword through him so hard? I ram it into a pipe behind him. I said, yes, that is perfect. And I'm going to give you the equivalent of inspiration for that because that's awesome. And I said, if I knew all the rules inside and out, I would now put a complication into the battlefield that your guys ranged attacks are harder because there's, there's a mist blown out of the pipe. Uh, and uh, the same can be said for um, when you're like, like if you're doing D and D, uh, and in some cases, it could be uh, I use a I use an inspiration pool where I have a bowl or a platter in front of me and I just throw poker chips into it. So an individual player doesn't get inspiration. The entire party does. 
And there's been times where it's like, okay, well, you did this, but you know, you're going to succeed. And I'm going to throw a chip in there. And there's one time where somebody was uh, waffling and I held a chip over the bowl and said, do the dumb thing, which is more exciting. I drop a chip, play it safe. You don't get the chip. I don't remember what he did, honestly. <laughs> I think he actually, safe. I love, I love that. I love that. Do the dumb thing. And yeah, I mean, ultimately this game, well, not just this game. I think RPGs in general are an escape and also a power fantasy. We want to feel like we're doing something to the world. We're having an effect on it. So I love how you kind of took which, you know, Matt Mercer's kind of made very popular and famous now, the whole how you want to do this on a success and inverted that and been like, how are you going to fail this? You know, I, I think that's great. And, I, I, and that's kind of tying back to like what our role as a GM is to do. We're the enablers are fun. Well, we're the enablers of fun. It's also, yeah, it's also the idea of player agency. You're giving the player more say in what's going on. So he's not, he's not just a he or she, they are not a spectator. They have an active voice in, this is why you have a session zero too, in maybe what the campaign's about or what they're bringing into the campaign and what happens. Um, now, at the same time, uh, there were points where uh, you're right, you shouldn't have to roll. Um, one of the great examples just is the game Gumshoe, in which if you miss the clue, they move it. You're always going to find this clue. And they point out in the... Nobody ever misses a clue in a clue-intensive TV show. It's what they do with the clues they find. It's important. So I'm running the game, and I'm going to – I may draw ire, but some people agree with me. I think Mercer asks for too many die rolls. There are many times where I'd be like, no, you should just say you do it, um, especially if it's something you're supposed to be really good at. And I think that's a stall tactic, honestly, because I'm, I'm, I'm also a critical f uh, fan like you. I've watched him a long enough time to see, like, usually they'll ask him a, like a, maybe a lore thing or a quick question. I, he goes, yeah, just roll. And then I think he's stalling to give himself that moment because I, well, a lot of respect to him if, if that's what he's doing because I do it sometimes myself. Right, too. but I, I do think there's times where it's like, make a performance check, do this. And I'm like, man, you should just let him do it and get, uh, because they often fail and sometimes it's really bad. And you're like, but I thought that's what they were good at. This is also a style. You know, somebody uh, somebody may say, no, no, that's his style. And I'm like, that's true. Um, but I also I also like what another GM did by the name of Darren Watts. And he was running a pulp era game. And this being the pulps, uh, a mad scientist was activating an earthquake machine in Central Park. And Lord Greystoke, who you would know as Tarzan, the player says, well, I want to get to Central Park. And, the, and he it was like, well, how do you do it? Well, I'm going to go out in the fire escape, run down the fire escape, leap off that, you know, land on a, a power line and start running along the power lines, you know, uh, and, and, and making my way there. And another player looked over and, he, and the GM said, you do it. Another player looked over and said, doesn't he make like an agility check for that? And the GM looks at the, that player and says, dude, he's fucking Tarzan. And, and to me, I've often felt we have, I have in my, try to keep my mind what's called the Tarzan rule. And it does not come up when you're in the middle of a fight. Because that is why you're rolling dice. We cannot predict the fight. But let's say we go a critical role. Grog walks into an orc camp, and he wants to impress on this big orc warlord how tough and strong he is. So he picks up the spit that they are using to grill over the over over the over the fire, and he wants to bend it into a knot. Mercer would probably say, "Make a strength check." I'd be like, "If he fails, it looks like a fool." However. Mercer may go, well, if you fail it, I can, you can add to the plot. But I'm like, you know what? Grog's whole bit is he's now got a 20-some-odd strength. He's big. He's eight feet tall. His whole thing is he's incredibly strong. Yeah, you bend it like it's a wet noodle. Now you have maybe impressed you. Now, at that point, 
yeah, you've impressed them, but one of them may decide he's going to have to show you up. So I've added to the plot, but we've also shown a character doing what their shtick is. Um, and you have to be careful, though. You know, you want to make sure it's when, when it's when failure makes you look like a fool. Don't have them fail. Let them. They are the main. They're the protagonists. They're the main characters of the story. You are watching or playing. You know, you're watching this anime. You're watching this movie. You're reading this book because you want to know what this character is going to do, and you want to see them. You know, you know. There obviously there are times where they're going to fail, but you you they, they are the reason why you're here. So you don't want to make them look foolish over something little. You know, you fought- and that could ruin their entire experience in RPGs in general. I mean, I've met so many people who uh, were scared of getting into RPGs. I was like, why? And he goes, oh, I tried one time and I like rolled bad or I didn't get it and I didn't play really well and people were down on me. And I'm like, well, shit, that's kind of on like, yeah, there's the chance that you roll seven natural ones in one session or, you know, seven failures in one session and nobody wants to suck. So you're right. Like there, there's kind of a need also for the GM because going back to what we're talking about running one shots at uh, conventions, you also want everybody to have a moment because yeah. you're right. This is six random, seven random humans uh, who are just wanting to sit down and play. They each want to take something from this session. So if unfortunately one guy or gal is rolling like shit the entire time and they're supposed to be you know so good at this thing but they can't roll real well – Throw them a, f- a freaking bone, you know. Like well, I, I can, I, I can say I've had this happen to me both ways. When I failed, and I've caught it sometimes, where I notice somebody's not having a moment or is kind of out of it, is maybe turning the story towards them and allowing them to have a moment to shine, right? And um, actually, some things I've done too was with the inspiration bowl. Everybody can draw on it, and there may be more chips than there are players. And I may say, well, give me a chip or give me an inspiration point, and you can do X. And that can turn the situation around. The other thing is, um, is when you ask them, um, it brings them into the story. I hate the meme about you roll a one and you fall on your sword or, you know, you caress the orc on the back. And, and, and cause I'm like, that, that is, that is a style of play I don't like. Um, so I, so yeah, if the person just can't get the dice to work, you know, you might actually say, try some different dice. You go, Hey, there's the pile of inspiration. Roll again or give me a few, you know, tell me what you want to do. And I'll tell you, give me a few chips and you do it, uh, you know, and, and it gets them back into the story. Um, and, you know, and I actually did this because uh, we had a character in a game I, I was running where the character, everybody thought the character was kind of uh, spacey and airheaded. Um, and they were, but they were also supposed to be this like idiot savant gunfighter. And at one point, the player said, I want Claire to shoot the knife out of the lich's hand. And I went, okay, I, and I looked at the character sheet and I said, you know, everybody thinks this, li- in the back of my head, everybody thinks the knife is the lich's focus. And it's not, it's really just a knife. So I said, you know what, this is your Tarzan moment. You do it. You shoot it out, it shatters, crazy shot. And it was like, wait, what? Claire just shot a knife, out, you know, hip shot out of a hand? Yep, because it showed what the character could do and was capable of. And it didn't. And it didn't affect the outcome of the fight because it had no effect on the Lich's ability to use its enchant- enchantments. Um, so it worked out for both of us. And, you know, there, that, that is, I think, important, which is uh, bringing the players in and making sure that, what you know, they feel like they're contributing, even if it is asking them how they didn't work. Or you could try the whole, hey, you know, I'm going to take an inspiration chip out of the pool and sure, you didn't make the DC, but now you did. But now I'm going to throw an additional complication to to notch up what I call the Chris Perkins tension meter. Which is, by the way, I've noticed uh, that whenever he gets asked a question in, in, in dice camera action, he does it more in DCA than in Acquisition Incorporated games, but he does it there, too. 
when he has a choice, when people aren't certain, and it's like, uh, or when he has to introduce a new element, he doesn't introduce the worst element, but he often introduces an element which raises the overall tension of the situation and makes things more urgent. And I like that idea. Anybody who goes off the map where the players can't see him is in Schrodinger's territory. Uh, I know where they are in, in the Curse of Strahd game where I, I really use this. And I, and I knew where they were if somebody went looking for them. But I knew that the moment somebody returned, and is, they were just going to show up no matter where they were because they were nebulous. And I wanted to be like, yeah, you walk off alone, then this guy who you thought ran away is going to be there. And now let's see what happens. And it worked. Yeah, and I will say, you know, I'm going to tie this back now to all the things we've been talking yeah, about. Sorry, we keep referencing. I, I, I kind of, I can no, 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 dude, go off there's no, that's totally fine. And I love that. And that's why I do a podcast. Literally, the reason I do a podcast is because I found out when I have these conversations at conventions, when I have these conversations at, you know, uh, geeky uh, cafes or bars and things like that, they become these hour, two, three hour long things that I keep talking about over and over and over again. And then I end up like having to talk, you know, multiple times just because I haven't gotten everything out. So this is why I have this podcast. Don't sweat it. So the reason I uh, I kind of wanted to go back to a little thing is because you kind of touched on it earlier when you mentioned Gen Con and stuff like that. And we keep bringing up all these sorts of like D&D streams or RPG streams and things like that is like we are in, I, I'm going to say, a, a, a RPG tabletop renaissance right now. And we are never going to, I don't think ever, ever anymore due to technology, never going to be at a shortage of content in regards to tips and production and publications and things like that. So for somebody like you who started before this all began and at a time where maybe RPGs weren't as popular, to have then done it the hard way and now see how readily accessible all this content is and how easy it is, with, as you mentioned, Drive Through RPG, DMs Guild and stuff like that. What are your kind of thoughts? I mean, are, are you, like, how are you feeling having kind of lived in both these eras? Um. Well, I still like going to a physical game store. And if you live in Maryland, I highly recommend you go to Games and Stuff in Glen Burnie. <laughs> but uh, the reason is, is that um, it's nice to be able to look at something. That's why I like going to Gen Con. And the I spent one Gen Con, I ended up spending the entire time in the dealer's room. I just wandered from booth to booth and looked at things and talked to people and played demos and so on. And there is a nice hand hands-on uh, feature to that on the flip side it's also nice to uh that the barrier for entry is much lower now i do think we do a very good job laying out and producing our products but i like the fact that um you know we can just push it up to drive through rpg i can send a link out on social media and hopefully people will look at it and pick up a copy so it is uh you know it used to be a big deal to go to the game store and it actually can still be a big deal to go to the game to a game store, but um, it's I, I think it's the best of both worlds. You have the physical product that shows up at the conventions and the dealers hall and so on, and in the game stores, but you also have a, an enormous amount of electronic product that you can pick up and then drop onto your tablet, onto your iPad or or your phone, and uh, so make it easier there. You don't have to carry as many books around. Um, People can produce product on very obscure subjects. I will admit the stuff that I'm producing for Eagle Beagle for 5e, which, you know, I, I can go over with you, if you uh, in, a, in a bit. Uh, some of it, you know, somebody goes, that's kind of obscure. Uh, I'm like, yeah, but people like it and it's fun to create and which is what I like about it. So 
and it's also now uh, with um, Skype and what is it, Roll20 and Fantasy Crowns and uh, what was the other one? Uh, Fantasy Grounds, CND Beyond, Roll20. Um, no, there, yeah, so Discord, with Discord. Discord, yeah, yes. You Discord. Can, uh, it's, you, know, you can play online. Um, I've never actually played online yet um, much, I don't think, you know, in that fashion. But, uh, I mean, that's how Dice Camera Action works. Chris is in Seattle and the other people are all over the United States. Um, you know, we all can't we, – we all don't get to have Felicia Day as a friend with a full studio to be able to do this. I mean um, – uh, Ross is being is, has been asked to stream Wrath and Glory games out of our basement, so we'll have a studio in our basement. Flip side is is that I get a really really nice gaming table out of this that I can that we can use when we're not streaming. So my Curse of Strahd game will have a really nice table to be played on, <laughs> you know. But um, yeah, you know. And the other thing is that production quality has gone up. I mean, I can tell you that in 1977, you know, it was it was uh, you know you had the nice hardback D and D books. But you had a lot of uh, mimeographed, stapled, done on a typewriter, very basically laid out uh, books with, you know, you go back and you look at early Judges Guild and Travelers, no, yeah, Judges Guild products and other products, editing, layout, tables, paste up, art, you know, it was, it's all very, very crude. If you actually look and try to read the first three D&D books, you're going to look at me and go, how did this become so popular? They, so it's incomprehensible in places, um, but it did. I mean, people, it really struck a, a, a nerve, um, and it just exploded. I mean, uh, and that's it's great. I mean, you know, Gary Gygax literally went from living in his mother's basement, selling insurance, and I think repairing shoes, if I hear it correctly, to you know, being a multimillionaire when that really, really meant something in the space of four years. Um, you know, and these days, unfortunately, those fortunes are not going to happen. I mean, if you want, if somebody comes to me and goes, well, you're in the gaming industry, how do I make it big in the gaming industry? I'm going to be like, develop a really good miniatures game, which runs the risk of either big bucks or big loss. Develop a really, some really good board game, a really good board game or a really good CCG RPGs are not the way to go, but I prefer RPGs because I feel there's more creativity, more content I can create, and I like the social activity um, because it's not a win-loss um, as most games are unless they're cooperative. And it is a big cooperative social gathering, and we play it for four to six hours at a time. And I will admit, I think, uh, and, and you can correct me if, if I'm, I'm maybe going uh, too far off and putting words in your mouth there, Um but I don't think you go into these types of things wanting, I mean, sorry, you do want to, expecting to become a multimillionaire and become, you know, a mogul and things like no, that. I, I think because of the natural creative bent to all the stuff we do, I think the process, the journey in and of itself is a large part of satisfaction. And then the fact that we can then possibly get some lunch or dinner or maybe pay a mortgage off of it is a great bonus. Well, for uh, for a while there, if it paid for my ability to get the Gen Con, I felt it was doing fine. Um, I mean, and the joke is also, how do you make a small fortune in the gaming industry? You start with a large fortune. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. I like that one. Yeah. Uh, now, on the other hand, though, success can also be measured by, um, you know, are we doing reasonably well? Can I support myself? I think Evil Beagle is very small. We are not, you know, we are not a, we have some well-known products and some well-known developers. We would love to be like the next Green Ronin, I'll be very honest. 
I'd love I'd love to be of that level of uh, business and such. But I also understand it's a highly competitive market. Uh, you know, there are dozens and dozens of RPGs out there. Um, and, the, you know, the big ones will come and go. Uh, you know, FASA is not what it used to be. Iron Clown is not what it used to be. Chaosium almost went bankrupt. Um, Steve Jackson has had, as, as reported, loss, not losses, but they reported that our profits for, has been dropping for the past few years. And that's and it's due to a lot of reasons. Um, uh, first of all, you know, de- uh, you, nobody's going to be the first of anything much anymore. There was, you know, somebody had to be the first fantasy game. Somebody had to be the first uh, cyberpunk game. Somebody had to be the first superhero game. A lot of those niches are already taken up. Um, so nowadays, you know, you can create a new RPG. You can create a new popular RPG. Um, Pathfinder is about 10 years old, and it's a D&D spinoff, but it's very popular. The Star Wars and Genesis are, if I, if I saw, saw correctly, are in the top five sales of the most of, of the like the recent month. So uh, you can, you know, you can create something that's new and have it explode. Uh, Shadowrun was came out of nowhere, really. Uh, it was like, well, and the time was right for a good cyberpunk game. There went where's Cyberpunk 2020, but I think it hit that once again. It was one of those perfect storms. Um, the rules weren't the best. People will readily admit that, but the art direction, the art, the layout, the writing, it just caught people by storm. And you you can always do that. You know, there's you should not be like one should not look at what they're producing with with. Oh, you know, I don't know. I don't know if this is going to sell. I'm not going to do it. You can never guarantee, you know, get your stuff out there and let the market decide. Um, And if you really, really want to be a full time game developer, then you need to be able to produce content on demand in large amounts and work as much as possible. Um, and maybe you'll be one of the lucky ones. There are there. I only know of a few people off the top of my head that I can guarantee are full-time game developers. And many of them are not making large amounts of money. I make more than my roommate uh, doing what I do, but he, I think sometimes and he doesn't have more fun than me either. I know that the deadlines of getting things ready and trying to deal with licenses and, and so on. It can be a very stressful situation and it could be worse if you go into video game development, which is where the really big money is, but it can, it's a lot harder to crack into that. And, and, and uh, you need often a much bigger team. One person can create a a pretty decent gaming supplement, but one person is not going to create a video game all by themselves. You need a team. So you've got to weigh what you want to do and how you want to do it and and what returns you want. Everybody wants to be successful. Everybody wants to be able to, you know, sit back and just I'm going to all I'm do is going to create games and watch the money roll in. But, you know, you got to you also have to understand that's not something that's that's going to happen to everybody. But on the other hand, don't let that stop you. Uh, You know, if you have a passion for creating, I, you know, for a long time, I would come home from work and I would. I would play something for about an hour and then I would set that aside and I'd break out my notes and I'd, I'd get to work on whatever concept I was writing up. And then eventually, you know, I would get it to whoever was willing to publish it. And Kickstarter has been a huge benefit for that. And uh, we would get it out there and I'd get uh, I'd eventually get a bit of a check and I'd feel pretty good about it. And I mean, right now you're even making content for which is the kind of prevalent uh, RPG of the Twitch and streaming world, it's D and D five E right now. Like you met, like you mentioned, it's kind of the great, greatest kind of intro to RPGs you can kind of pick because of how um, it's kind of simplified, refined, and open it is. And you're creating content for that now. So, what's the content looking like? But so, um, 
it all goes back to the Curse of Strahd game. Uh, you're running it, so you know that there is the tables of what you can encounter when you're on the road. And I had ideas for additional encounters. And um, this coalesced, and I thought about it, and I'm now using the term cogitate a lot because of that, of being being around 40K at the moment. Um, but what happened was that I thought about, I'm going to do 100 random encounters, and then Sanity took over, and I cut it to 50. <laughs> but um, what happened was, was that I said, well, I want to do, I called it Unpleasant Discoveries. And I said, it's going to be a collection of, uh, and of things for your players to encounter in gothic horror themed games. And I realized that it was basically saying this is for Curse of Strahd, but I also, in the introduction, I talked about what is horror, how to run horror. I took lessons I had learned from Ken Height and Robin Laws and Ross Watson and others, and I included it. My friend Bill Keys goes, well, here's this little article I, or this essay, this small essay I wrote on how to run horror. And I put it all in there. And, and, uh, you know, and I, and I stressed, this is what you can use it for. And I said, you know, if you, this is obviously for Curse of Strahd, but you could use it for a, a Draco Lich's region. You could use it for a mummy lich, for hags, for vampire lords, demons, you know, just modify it a bit. And then I started writing encounters and, um, it was anything from, you know, you find stuff in the, in the road to, uh, one of my favorites is you find an entire ruined farmstead. Uh, and uh, it, there are 2d6 skeletons that are going through the motions of farming. And if you don't disturb them, you could walk right through the farmstead. But if you don't disturb them, don't attack them, don't cast spells on them, don't try to turn them, they completely ignore you. But, of course, if you interfere with them, they are going to try to fight you off and then go back to whatever they were doing. And some of them were very elaborate, and some of them were very basic. And when I was done, I was like, that was pretty good. And so I did Feywild Discoveries, and I talk... And it set up the pattern. The first quarter to third of the article is going to be me talking about the subject matter, the Feywild and fairies and what they are like, according to European legend and what is meant by the to be capricious and what the Seelie and Seelie court is like. Um, and then 50 encounters. And I did one for the Underdark where I went into a like, let me define for you cave formations and what they're like and how caves are made and how this can how you can treat this in the Underdark. And by the way, what are real world cave creatures like? Oh, hey, they should all be white. They should all have ridiculously long antenna. They should all have either tremor sense or blind sense. And by the way, here at the end of the at the end of this all, and this started actually with Feywild discoveries. Here's some custom stat blocks. Here is some some creatures adapted loosely from Brian Ford's Book of Fairies and my other fairy source books that I have. Here's some blind cave creatures and so on. And then I did one called City Discoveries, where I did 50 street level, 50 sewer encounters. And I talk about how to build a city and elements of it. And I just finished uh, the biggest one at 28,000 words, which is Draconic Discoveries. And as opposed to being 50 random encounters of dragons, because I realized that wasn't going to work. It is a lair, uh, written up lair with maps. There's about 14 maps, one for each dragon type. So there's a gold dragon layer, there's a red dragon layer, and so on. But also for uh, dragon creatures, like there's a hydra layer, there's a behir layer, there's a wyvern layer, uh, you know, and so on. And hey, you get, you get two custom stat, stat blocks. I have a Kyolung, which is your classic Chinese dragon, and I have a Lindorm, which is your Scandinavian worm snake dragon. And I did that. And actually, uh, when you first contacted me, 
I was going to reread the introduction I had written for something called Treasure Discoveries, which will be not 50 random treasures because that'd be kind of boring. It's going to be a whole breakdown of precious metals, gems, gem cuts, uh, a, a whole glossary because, you know, you find a coffer. What is a coffer? What is treasure kept in? And then, uh, like, I'm going to try to look for folklore and jewels. What is it used for? What, you know, rare woods, uh, definition of metals. And then I have waiting in the wings because the ideas keep coming. And this is where this whole, you know, Stephen King, there's a, there's a floodgate in my head. I've got, I want to do one for oceanic. I want to do one called fiendish discoveries. I want to do one called astral discoveries for the astral plane. And then my roommate Ross said, what about giants? And I was like, well, I could do that just like draconic, uh, uh, an encounter. Uh, that, that the GM can modify and add on to for each giant type. And, you know, an Etten, a Storm Giant, o- Ogre, Ogre, uh, Oni, all that. You know, it'll be about 14 of those. And I might even try to do some custom giants. Uh, in fact, I did. I, I actually wrote up a, a stone coat, which is a giant of Native American mythology. And then I don't know when it'll come out, <laughs> but if hopefully I'll be able to work on these from now to the end of the year. And uh, I actually approached Evil Beagle and said, well, maybe we could Kickstarter and do a printed version called Fantastic Discoveries, where all of this is in one book. And um, Sean Fannin, my boss and owner, my the major owner of the company, was like, that's a great idea. We just have to cover developments all are done. We just cover printing and art and we can get it out and distribute it through Studio Two and we can get it, get it into game stores. Um, and even then we're like, yeah, if we go overboard, if we go over we could have uh, stretch goals like 25 mountain discoveries, 25 swamp discoveries. Um, and it just keeps coming. And, and this is kind of, you know, this is the creative energy where I've got to, I've got to get an outlet of it. I've got a notebook here that I can't show you because I don't have the camera going. That is absolutely crammed with notes. And a lot of which is crossed out because I've already used it, but I'm constantly adding to it. And I'm like, this is a good game idea. Um, and somebody might say, what's well, kind of obscure. And I'm like, yeah, but, some people have been like, these are really useful because it's a plot seed. It's an adventure hook. It's a, if I just desperately need something on the fly. And toward the end of my um, Curse of Strahd game, I actually started using my own list of discoveries. And everyone was like, those are pretty neat. And I was pretty happy with that. Yeah, I mean, that's what we all strive for. I mean, not just as RPG fans, I think as any sort of creative person, is you, you strive for that 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 thing that, that will just make you want to ravenously create or ravenously uh, put in the work because then that's the passion. That's what it's for. Uh, and I, I mean, all this sounds actually absolutely brilliant. I can't wait to, to get my hands on the new stuff that you're creating as well as the stuff that you've created already before. Um, is, is, is it fair enough to say, now you can correct me if I'm wrong here, um, but you mentioned, you know, I know you've done some stuff from superhero to, you know, anime Eastern inspired. And I also have actually had a chance to look at your Asian bestiary thing. Accidentally, uh, ironically enough, I, your name had rung a bell when I saw you on Twitter and then I looked back at it. I ran, it, it was a small RPG. It's called OVA. It's like an anime RPG. Yep, I know that. Uh, yeah. Oh, you know, you know, I know, uh, it's I've never sil- played it. And I do. I honestly okay. will admit, I don't understand the rules. It's a silly fucking system, dude. I'm not going to lie to you. I I was looking at it and I was like, the, there was eventually a point to where like somebody was rolling 12d6 against my 6d6, but because all they had was like junk rolls and I got three sixes, I beat them or something like it, it was, it's a really, really stupid system, but it's really fun in its silliness. And obviously I only do it for like uh, kind of one shots where I want to get really animated up 
and do my shonen things. But when I was prepping those adventures, you know, I told my my my, my regular D and D group, I'm like, hey guys, we're gonna have some uh, just one shots to kind of clear our minds and clear our palettes before we go into this big thing. I was like, oh shit, I gotta get like Asian inspired monsters together. And ironically enough, you had an Asian bestiary volume series. Um, it was the hero system, but I but I I I I saw a lot of the monsters in there and stuff, and I'm like, oh shit, this is a great resource. And here I am over a year later uh so that's that's kind of funny how i i knew of you before i knew of you um but would you say would you say like what what's your setting that that, that appeals to you the most or at least currently was it fantasy is it superheroes no I, I i there's okay so uh i created cause five which is your 80 my my homage to 80s cyberpunk anime it's got bubblegum crisis hard suits it's got apple seed landmates it's got um, cat-eared replicated humans so get your cat girls like the puma sisters from dominion mm-hmm. it's got um espers because i was a big fan of akira and you know it's got that blade runner um everything neon aesthetic yeah, yeah. in the japan it's real i love it yeah <laughs> so a friend my friend ross watson and i keep bringing his name up mainly because he's my roommate and he's and we we he's he and i have worked a lot um and i'm also i will admit i'm pitch i'm I'm getting him out. I want you to interview him too. Uh, Absolutely. But uh, he spun that into something called Shadows Angeles, which is where he took all of that and he added magic, which is not Shadowrun, but Silent Mobius, which is probably my favorite manga anime that most people don't know about. And I wish, but is I wish it was getting more love in the States. It's it's on its 30th anniversary, and you know I I would love Kodanisha to do the same thing for that that they're doing for Battle Angel and Akira, where they bring it all back in a nice box set or something. You know, maybe I don't know. And and Kiyasamaya is doing a whole new manga, and I can't even read Japanese, but I'm like buying them from Japan because I and I'm I just goggling over how his art has improved and how there's so many characters now that it's such a perfect RPG setting. And what he did was that he created a uh, a campaign that I will state um, is my best campaign ever. If Jeff felt that My Curse of Strahd was the best campaign he ever played in, the 24 sessions that we played of Shadows Angeles in around 2005, 2006 is still probably the best game I was ever in. And we were members of XWAT. We were uh, paranormal police fighting Lovecraftian monsters in a floating city of the future in the year 2112. Uh, the rush edition and uh, <laughs> and <laughs> and um it was lightning in a bottle um it was it is this it is a setting that uh um ross wants to go back to um and we have talked about what we want to do with it um the new game the new superhero system that we're developing and producing for evil beagle um because of the way it plays and i think it's it's fast anime style it may actually uh, uh we may be able to uh port kaze 5 and shadows angeles over to that but we definitely want to do something to bring it out and and get it to the wider market uh, because i think it's something that uh, people would really dig as a system and it's and it's uh it is the setting it's not a system it's the setting that i really really enjoy um i have a convention game that I run um, using that that setting, and people have been like, "What is this? I want to know more about it." Um, and it just—it's something that I I can I for whatever reason I can actually develop in my head for that easier than I can for my own Kaze Five setting, um, which is odd, but you know it's uh, 
it's just how it happens. It's just something that really has grabbed hold. And if you go to my website, and if, and I, and if you uh, ping me by email, I can actually send you the link. I have a link called The Best Game I Ever Played, I believe. And you can read all about what went on and all the, the characters and such. And even now, um, I believe back in Maryland, they are the, the group that I used to play with is talking about doing another arc or camp or, or such set in it. Um, so we've jokingly called it the game that will not die. God damn it. I love that. And I love RPGs. This is, this is what, this is why I do the podcast and why I talk to people and why I, I spend the money and go out to the conventions and do all the things, uh, because of this, this kind of feeling, this emotion, it's evoking, you know, we're sitting around a table talking make-believe and we're playing make-believe, but it feels so very strong and so very real and so very nostalgic. And, you know, I still to this day, I, I just recently actually got tweeted an image from a player of mine who's uh, moved away, but he he found an old character sheet in one of my games that he used to play and goes, hey, look at this. And like this wave of emotions like, oh, shit, it's this Warforged that I used to play. Holy fuck. Like, like this is this is what I love about these fucking RPGs and things like that. And yeah, I'll definitely get that link and set that up for you. But um, if you kind of easily segue for me, if people do want to contact you, Mike, what's the easiest way? Um, well, the joke used to be, and I may, may still hold now, that if you put my last name into Google and hit I feel lucky, you go to my website. Um, but uh, that website has not been maintained for a long time, um, and I don't know what I'm going to do with it. I would love to get a new website that I can now put my D&D conversions and my Prowlers and Paragons material onto. But I do not have the time, energy, or money to try to convert my old website, which has about 8,000 files <laughs> into a WordPress or anything. It's just it's just a staggering amount of work that I don't know what to do with. Um, however, uh, there are not, there's probably, there are plenty of, there's a couple of Serbrooks on Facebook, but there's only one Michael Serbrook. Um, and uh, I'm on Facebook. If you look, look for me on Twitter, I have, I have, I have stepped up my Twitter game where I'm trying to do multi-part essays. I actually want to talk about I have a couple subjects I want to talk about coming up, including representation in RPGs, switching characters and character death and how it can how it can expand and uh, any other suggestions. And sometimes I talk about silly stuff like if you could if you had the rights to any IP in the in the universe, what game would you make? Uh, my answer was Borderlands. So was Jeff's. Um, but uh, you can also email me if you really want to talk to me straight up, um, because, you know, if you go to my website or. Or such, you can contact me that way. And actually, my Twitter feed, I believe, has my website, and so does so does my Facebook. Um, and I'm all, always willing to talk about games and 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 what's going on and and my thoughts on things. Um, and I tend to discourse on game related stuff and and such in Facebook. But my Twitter feed, if you want, if you're mostly interested in what my thoughts on gaming and such, that would be my Twitter feed. Uh, also, if you look for Evil Beagle Games. I am a, a part owner and developer, and you can see what we are doing as a company. And I have my own little product line, Michael Serpent Presents, which includes Savage, some Savage Worlds, some Hero, a lot of D&D, and some completely system agnostic, such as uh, Filthy Lucre, one of my favorite articles that I wrote, which is a long treaty on fantasy money and the realities of money in the real world and how you may want to up your your fantasy game by uh, making your money more than just bland gold pieces and uh, giving it names and denominations and, and trading and things other than coin. 
Oh, don't get me started on that. I have an economics degree, and for a small bit, I was running uh, like a sub story, a sub arc in in my two campaigns about like the monetary systems and how you know gold, some people were doing gold standard, and other kingdom was introducing fiat currency and all that stuff, which I'm super into because, again, I'm have an economics degree, and I'm an idiot, and my <laughs> players were like, or and my players were like, this is what what I don't why is there different names and why is there different currency exchange rates and I'm like I, maybe this is too much I'll just keep this to my Excel spreadsheets I'm good don't I, worry about I me, do guys. note that if you're going to run a Matt Mercer really expansive game you probably don't want to do what I talk about but if you're going to set it in just one single city if you're going to be Lankmar or if you're going to be uh, Liza Lock Lamoria or even Name of the Wind um, you know you may just ditch the gold standard and go to silver and and talk about you know crowns and half crowns and shillings and pennies and marks and whatever um and certainly if you're going to do a game set in japan you have to learn that if you want that fuel japan fuel you're going to have to talk about uh you have to learn the monetary system because it's completely different um and i do talk about how to yeah things that you're talking about exchange rates and loans and the idea that you could be sponsored by an adventuring company who expect a percentage of your the treasure you find when you come back um, to pay for the whole character arc for one of my campaigns was somebody paying down their student debt for Magic School. Like <laughs> yeah. that's that's the type of shit. And it, and maybe maybe I'm weird, but fortunately my players are cool with it. Where I like to also introduce real life struggles oh, yeah. into their fantasy games. Well, also for all you thieves uh, and rogues. Uh, the article talks about how to counter or how to uh, defraud uh, currency and in, in, in on how it really was done. Um, and, and you're like, oh, here's ways that I as a rogue can mess around with coinage if the GM lets me. You know, here's how to counterfeit. Here's how to here's how to make money on the side by scraping uh, silver out of a silver coin or shaving the edge or shaking it in the bag and taking the dust. Um, and I want to do one on law, too. I actually have a I have a bunch of resources um, in my li- personal library on medieval law. And I want to do one, you know, in which I actually open up with your traditional midnight players stagger out of the tavern into the, into the street. And there's, there's Pete Pasher's by and link boys and everything. And sort of the paraphrase, uh, last Jedi, everything I've just written there is wrong. If you look at it from a medieval standpoint and sure you can say, you know, it's a fantasy game. It's not the European middle ages, but it's one of the best uh, resources we have to try to uh, provide some vermicid, or uh, expand. Versimilitude. Thank you. I'm like Mercer. I, I read the word. I haven't usually pronounced a lot of them. <laughs> but how, <laughs> you, can, right. how you can make things seem more real and more uh, and and provide new challenges. I mean, imagine if people rode into town and all of a sudden they're arrested and they found out you're not allowed to wear purple because purple is only for nobility. We have sumptuary or statuary laws. You're like, what? And there's a whole, you know, and somebody goes, you're just messing with this. Hey, but what are you going to do about it? You're a paladin. You uphold the law of the land. And this says this is what you're supposed to do. You know, what are you going to do? They've arrested your rogue. You got to bust them out of prison. What are you going to do? And, you know, you can, you can, you can actually, especially for city centric adventures, you can provide a lot of new uh, ideas and fuel and, and plot hooks and seeds. And I think we've really run over your one hour time. Yeah, no, I was gonna say like we we had we had you doing your uh, like here's here's my here's my stuff and I'm about to do the final call out and then we we got into another tangent. Damn it, this is why you I you want to do a two hour show? No, we can't do a two hour show. Uh, we we can't we can't we can't we would I would gladly do one. I'll have you back on because uh, you actually mentioned representation, which is a thing I touched a little bit on in my Jeff thing, but I wanted to go a little bit deeper 
considering uh, that's something that's important to my game as well. So there's some other topics that I think, Mike, you're going to be great to have back on. Certainly. But for those of you uh, who are listening and want to contact me, the podcast email is myrpgpodcast at gmail.com. You can, of course, find us on Podbean and on iTunes. It's just myrpgpodcast. My personal Twitter is at classy underscore Don if you just want to talk to me about any of that stuff at all. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you at the table.